Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1942 film Casablanca. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Good morning. Uh, Barrett, this was such a delight to watch. Um, I will just say right off the right off the top, this is this is one of my favorite movies. Um, it, I, I, well, let me, let me put it this way: it's one of the first. Uh, what I would have thought of as old movies that I realized that I loved. Um, mm. So in that way, it it it, um, it carries a special place in my heart. Um, this is a movie that has a long history. Uh, this is a movie that that we've talked sometimes about movies that get forgotten and rediscovered. This is a movie that sort of never got forgotten. Um, what is your history with this film? Is this something from childhood that was? available because this seems like more, a more available movie than lots of other things yeah actually you know what i'm gonna deflect the question in a slightly different direction because i have a special relationship with um uh with the direct with the director actually and this is something i may have mentioned in the uh, in, in the past but um a few years before casablanca uh Curtiz, uh directed angels with dirty faces uh which brought together i think it was the first film to bring together jimmy cagney and humphrey bogart uh, and I, I considered Angels of Dirty Faces, 1938, my discovery of classic Hollywood. Um, I saw that on TV when I was in high school or junior high, and it was the first time I'd ever encountered both Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogart, and that just, it just blew me away. I just thought that was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Um, so I don't recall Casablanca the first time for me, but I do, as I said, I do recall kind of Curtiz was my introduction to classic Hollywood filmmaking uh, and to Humphrey Bogart as well as Jimmy Cagney. Did, did Casablanca seem like it was always there though? I mean, I mean do, do you yeah. remember a time of not being aware of Casablanca? I guess know, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I can't, yeah, it, it's sort of like, it, when you say Hollywood, there's sort of a sense in which Casablanca is Hollywood. It just seems completely analogous, completely equivalent to me to the classic Hollywood, the classic Hollywood film. So somehow, yeah, it's always back there. So, so as, a, as a result, I, I really can't remember the first time I watched it. Yeah, I tried to think about it for me, and I I want to locate it. And this is probably me misremembering my life. I want to locate it in 1998. Um, which was such a big year when that AFI list came out because this was number two on the the 1998 AFI list, number three in 2007. And again, I remember watching that uh, TV special. I think it was maybe over, it was maybe one night or over two nights um, watching it and sort of taking notes on things I needed to see. Um, so in my in the the narrative, I tell myself I went and watched a bunch of movies I'd never seen, and Casablanca was one of them. But I probably saw it before before that. I will say. Um, in that that late '90s run of me going back and and really starting to watch older films, um, this is the movie that that went down the easiest. This is such an easy movie to watch. It's such an easy movie to love. Um, where uh, other movies, a lot of movies we talked about on this this podcast mm -hmm. are things that I would say are great movies, but they're more challenging to watch. They they take a lot more thought to say like, okay, what do I think about this? How do I make sense of this? I mean, I'll I'll go back to when we talked about a movie like The Last Wave. That took mm -hmm. a lot of work for me to really get to a point where I'm like, I think this is kind of great and really interesting. Um, this I don't have to process at all. I can it just like goes into my veins um, so so easily. And I think that's you know we'll talk about kind of why that is, but 
this is probably the easiest watching great movie I can think of. I, I, I think that's the way a lot of classic Hollywood films actually work, right? I, and I think it gets it gets back to that, that idea that film is both an art form and a commercial production, right? So there's a sense in which it has to, to, to be successful, at least during the classic Hollywood studio period, it really has to do what you're describing, Sam. It has to be something that an audience will, in a sense, kind of gobble up. But at the same time, when you look more deeply into what's going on in the film, and this is certainly true in Casablanca, there's a lot of really significant issues being engaged, but in a way that is, as you said, it's easy for an audience to kind of digest or, or swallow. So I'm going to ask you a question and, and, and feel free to tell me that, that this like gut feeling that I have is wrong. Cause I think it is wrong, but at the same time, I can't help but feeling, um, is this movie, because it is unbelievably popular over time. I mean, it is, like you said, it is, if uh, if all of Hollywood was erased and like there were just little remnants of it left, like this might be the thing people think about with Hollywood movie. Like like I even think about a song like "As Time Goes By" might as well be the national anthem of Hollywood. Like whenever <laughs> there's like a movie montage, like okay, well that's a great song you can lay under it if you're talking about classic Hollywood. It's such a beloved movie. Does it get? dinged critically because of its popularity and i let me put some parentheses around this um as i was reading like this seems like the type of movie where if you were to say to somebody this is my favorite movie that the response would be yeah it's great but have you seen this this or like like that it's like like it's because it's so easy does that heard it in some way and, and it's silly for me to say this because this is a, i mean it's on the sight and sound list it's on the afi list but i just I, I always when i'm reading about it i have this tone and maybe it's because every article written probably after 1995 has to start with there's already so much written about casablanca i can't tell you how many times i read that whenever somebody started to write about casablanca so i, I just it's like this weird feeling that i have that it's that it's almost under it's weird to say underappreciated but but it's like it's almost underappreciated because it's so loved does that make sense yeah well you you know you're 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 tapping into my um uh to my temptation to be kind of elitist uh and to kind of go back to what you said at the beginning sam that is that you know truly great movies are movies that make you work really hard truly great movies are movies that when you first see them you're like Hmm, I'm not sure about that, or that was an experience, or you know, that, that was kind of hard to sit through, but I, I pride myself on having done it. So I, I think there's a kind of intellectual snobbery around around films that can actually kind of and I, I find myself falling into that trap sometimes, you know, feeling as though if it doesn't make me work really hard or it doesn't in some way alienate me initially, then it's not really worthy of attention. But I don't think that's the case with Casablanca. I think that, you know, and I and I've read some fairly recent criticism on it. Um, and I think people keep going back to the film because it is complex in interesting ways because the, the production of the film is complex because the film says so much about Hollywood, how Hollywood related to um, an entire emigre population. So I think, it's, I think it's a film that has a lot of layers to it, both in terms of the production of the film as well as what's actually going on in the film. So I don't, I don't think it actually gets dinged for being, for being popular. I think, there are some, I think there are some popular films that that happens to. I think there are certain, there are entire genres that don't get respectability because of their popularity. But I don't, th I don't think it's hurt Casablanca at, at, at all. 
Yeah, and I will say no. I mean, Casablanca doesn't need me defending it no, against no. something that's not there. It just—it's just—it was this. I as I was writing questions, I just found myself writing this series of like this thing that I sort of felt, and and and, and maybe what I'm feeling is a preparation for defend for for like um, defending against something that happens to other films. But but you're right. I mean, like this is this is a movie that that seems uh, adored across the board um it's it's now there are people who take shots at it but even that is um seems half-hearted uh you know like like, like uh critically that way um one of the things that I, that I want to uh talk about with this film is I, I do want to talk about the director um because uh when I think about sort of the great the great Hollywood films I can usually name the director of it I realized as I was preparing for this I was like Huh, I actually don't know who what the name of the director for Casablanca. Now, part of that is because, as you mentioned last week, this is one of the I think Andrew Sarris points to this as like the 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 archetype for the non-art auteur film, um, just because you have again it's you have so many different pieces in such a such a strange production. Um, so I didn't know who uh, Michael Curtiz is. So it's interesting that that he has this particular part of your your film watching narrative. Um, but then I went back and looked at his filmography and realized he's actually made a number of movies that I really like, and mm-hmm. it just didn't even didn't even occur to me. For example. Um, Roughly in the same year that Casablanca is made is the, is uh, when Jimmy Cagney's uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. That's mm-hmm. a 1942 film. Casablanca is somewhere between 42 and 43, depending on on right. on what you consider the the premiere of it. Um, and then he also made White Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to think about those movies and like. And my first thought was, oh, it's weird. Those two are musicals, and Casablanca isn't. And then I think about how important music is to Casablanca. That it's. It's not a musical, but there's a, there are musical numbers, and music is really, really, really central to kind of how the story is told, both um, diegetically. I mean, the music there there is a song that is significant, but then also the way that the uh, the French national anthem becomes this core piece to the score. Yeah, yeah. My other uh, my other history with Curtiz is he also directed one of a, one of the first swashbucklers I ever watched with Errol Flynn, uh, Captain Blood. Which is one of the one of the great uh, swashbuckling dramas, and then things like Mildred Pierce, which he directed as well. You know, and, and the interesting thing is, Sam, I tend to be an auteurist in terms of my approach to film. I, I like to follow particular directors, but I do take a kind of perverse pleasure in the idea that um, this is a wonderfully anti-auteurist film, and that Curtiz, in a sense, is an anti-auteurist director. He directed over a hundred films. Um, but there wasn't necessarily a Curtiz style. That was kind of the whole point. He didn't really put a stamp on a film the way you think a director like like Wells uh, did. And and that's one of, I think, one of the one of the kind of glories of, of his career. Um, I'm glad you mentioned music, and we may get into that a little more deeply, but the um, the composer for the film is uh, is Max Steiner, who um, actually over the course of his career had uh, 24 Academy Award. Uh, nominations, uh, and he won three, including another film that was made right before this film, which also had Paul Henreid and um, Claude Rains in it, the great uh, Betty Davis film, Now Voyager. Uh, he did the he did the music for that one as well. So you talked about the th- this has a a famous uh, sort of production narrative to it. Can you talk a little bit about um, kind of maybe some of the interesting points of how, how this movie was put together. Cause this, I mean, it gets described as like at one level, it's just another movie that came out of Hollywood, but it has a, like an A-list set of, of 
people around it uh, in terms of the people in it, the people making it. Um, and it, in even the way that the screenplay gets written is this sort of complex narrative and, you know, the actors not exactly knowing where this story's going as they're putting it together. Can you talk a little bit about the, the production narrative? Yeah. So the, the, the film begins as a, as an unproduced play called everybody goes to Rick's. Um, and what I find interesting about that is I wanted, I wanted to make a connection back to, um, uh, the third man that we watched a couple weeks ago and, and and one of the inspirations for everybody goes to rick's was actually one of the writers of the of the play who had experienced vienna at the time of the anschluss and also i would also point out that and i'd forgotten this the casablanca actually begins with a kind of pseudo documentary approach in the same way that the third man uh began so it's kind of interesting connection there anyway so the, so the so the play gets um submitted to uh, to warners uh, and uh, and here's here's a connection to another um, another film we watched a while ago, which is Sunset Boulevard. And then you and I just rewatched it recently. Anyway, um, remember in Sunset Boulevard, uh, William Holden's script gets rejected. Well, the Casablanca, the reader who's making a hundred making a dollar twelve an hour, reads reads the script and he says it's an excellent melodrama, colorful, timely background, tense mood, suspense, psychological, physical conflict, tight plotting sophisticated hokum, a box office natural for Bogart uh, or Cagney or, or Raft. So, so then the film gets recommended, uh, it gets picked up by Warners and uh, the Epstein brothers, they're a, a set of twins, get assigned to, uh, to actually write the film. So they're, they're the primary authors with, um, but then there's several other hands kind of get involved. I mean, even, even the closing line was uh, supposedly was in a memo uh, sent by the producer to it. So it's kind of everybody kind of contributes. But there's one little story about the Epstein twins that I actually I actually love. Um, they showed up at the lot for work one day quite late uh, in the middle of the afternoon. And so Jack Warner, the studio head, saw them and uh, he, he wrote a memo to them saying, railroad presidents get in at nine o'clock, bank presidents get in at nine o'clock, read your contracts, you're coming in at nine o'clock. Uh, they sent a note back to him saying, dear JL, have the bank president finish the script. Um, <laughs> Evidently, he liked them well enough that that did not uh, that that went over okay. Uh, he liked their chutzpah, anyway. So, that, so that's a little bit of the, of the of the origin in terms of the script, and a lot of different hands contribute. And that's one of this is kind of one of the miracles. And as you mentioned earlier, um, it was a it was a film where they didn't even know the ending as they were as they were filming it. And in in the in the airport scene, which is actually one of the first ones shot, um, uh, Ing Ingmar uh, Ingrid Bergman didn't know who she was going with. It was like, and, and she didn't know how to play it at times. Say to Curtis, you know, so what's, and he says, no, just basically play it as if you're not sure, uh, which actually was kind of the best, the best instructions he could have given her because she really wasn't sure. Uh, and it really worked. Well, and what I love is, and I, is there's an earlier point in the movie where Rick is talking to Ilsa and she says, let me tell you a story. And he says, well, does it have a big wow ending? And she says, well, I, it, has, it isn't finished yet. And I was like, wow, isn't that great that, I mean, that they put that that line is sitting there when it's like, that's actually also the story of the movie that it does have one of the great big wow finishes in terms of um, the movie probably has four lines that would be perfect moments to end the movie on. And it's like, well, let's just throw you another perfect ending line for a movie. Um, uh, so, so I love that, that sort of earlier in the, earlier in the movie, they're, they're talking about telling stories that don't have endings. I, I also have to say something about the production schedule, um, which, you know, they shot this film in three months. 
Um, it, it's amazing. The, 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 the first, the first scene was, uh, shot, um, on May 25th and actually it was the Paris cafe scene. And the, the last day of shooting was August 22nd. And it was the scene in which they announced the murder of the two German couriers. So as is typical of Hollywood, uh, shooting, it was not, it was not shot in any kind of a chronological order, but to do this in three months, is pretty remarkable. Well, it's so interesting to, you know, to watch this. I mean, we're, we're going to constantly talk about the third man as we talk about this, um, that this is shot entirely, well, almost entirely on a studio lot, as opposed to like, you know, last week we were talking about Vienna playing Vienna and this is, this is a, this is a studio and it, but it, it, uh, you know, and this then that's again one of the sort of pieces of magic of this is that you talk about it shooting in three months, that it's sort of its production feels like, well, this is just another movie they're cranking out, and it but it it turns into this this piece of magic. And part of that, to go back to something you were saying, is it is such an amazing screenplay. Mm-hmm. It is it's it's perfect for what it is. This is the kind of it's not real it's not realistic but it's 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 heightened in a way it's like i want to live in a world where every it's not even just like the main characters every character in this movie always says something amazing something like this like perfect like witty thing or perfect response i'm amazed how many people get great lines get great responses um whole conversations are just people saying these like quick things back to each other where you're like, wow, that was amazing. They said that. And then this person said that it reminds, it's not at all like this, but it reminds me of what I love about some of my favorite Coen brothers movies where the scripts just seem like every person here is saying something interesting that there's not a lot of, there's not scenes where you're like, Oh, I want to get this part over with. Even when they're panning across Rick's and you're seeing unnamed characters, having little conversations, which are setting the tone even those conversations are interesting and often very funny. Um, and, and, and you're getting whole characterizations and somebody saying a line or two. I think, I think in a way, Sam, that's, well, first of all, that, that I think is a, is a hallmark of the really great Hollywood films that they're really well written. I think it's also in part because as, as is the case with Casablanca, it has its origins in a, in a, in a, in a theatrical piece, in a play. Um, but I would, I would, I would, cons- I would say that the language is heightened, almost in an Oscar Wildean sense. But it's not mannered. It's mm-hmm. not like it's not like watching a David Mamet screenplay, where where David Mamet characters speak a very distinctive kind of English. Nobody really talks the way they talk in a Mamet play. People do talk this way, but they don't talk this way constantly. Right. So, so it's, it's like it's it's a distilled version of the best of conver- of conversations. It's exactly right because as you're saying that I realized it's sort of like if you took the smartest thing you said each day for a year and put it all in one day is what it feels like. It's like everybody just has the perfect response. Um, Even somebody like Laszlo who's like doesn't get a lot of you don't think of Laszlo as like this great character with a lot of great lines like when he's talking to Strauss. uh, It's like everything he says back to him is just loaded with all of this kind of disdain and, and it's, and it's witty. And I, I, I love it. I, I think it's, um, and it's part of why this movie goes down. So well. it's part of why rewatching it is so easy because I think about certain scenes that jump out to me and I forget about all these other little exchanges that again, set the tone for, for the movie. Um, you know, partially this is a, a movie we talked about how kind of it never goes away and it's sort of ubiquitous in, in culture. Um, 
it by the time I saw this, regardless of when it was that I saw it, I had seen it so repeated and parodied and quoted in other parts of culture that it's you know, in some ways, like it's how I feel about Shakespeare sometimes. It's like it's hard to imagine seeing this with fresh eyes. Like, what would it have been like in 1942? or 43 to go to a theater and see this in a world where this didn't already exist. Mm -hmm. Because by the time I saw it, even if I didn't know every story beat, like I knew who Rick was, I'd seen versions of Rick in cartoons and things like this growing up. Like this was just, so, so it's, uh, it's amazing how good it is, despite the fact that it has been processed through culture for, you know, uh, 80 years. Well, to, 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 to go back to one of our earlier films, it's, it's a little bit like The Princess Bride in, in, in that sense, just at least in terms of all the lines that can be quoted, but also the idea that one of the most famous lines, one of the most famous lines from the film is actually a misquote, right? So it's, it's famous for not only being a quote, but actually for being a misquote. So every time you say, play it again, Sam, somebody has to say, no, no, no. In the movie, the line is, play it, Sam. Uh, so now you've kind of got two quotes in the movie, one which is in the movie, one which isn't in the movie. So then it gets, so then it has kind of this double, this double afterlife. Yeah, I, I really, and, and this is a movie that without thinking about it, it's funny to go back and watch with my kids because I realize there are things that I say from this movie that they didn't know were from a movie and all of a sudden they see it and, um, I will, I, and it's, it's, what's great is it's not things that, um, main character say one of I, I love the the pickpocket is one of my favorite little side characters i will very often turn to my kids you know at moments and just say vultures vultures everywhere <laughs> just as like a warning to be like like pay attention to what's going on around you um and then uh a, a running family joke uh and this is another of my favorite unnamed characters in this movie is the I think it's a German couple who are getting ready to go to the U S and they've decided to speak English. Um, and I will turn to my daughter and instead of asking her what time it is, I will say what watch and she'll tell me the time and I'll say such watch. <laughs> I think it's just like, like little pieces like that are, they're just such funny little moments. And it's like, it's like that, that you realize that character has their own movie that they're in. We're not going to see that movie. But we're going to, we're going to sweep past it in the, um, on the set, but it's like, I don't know. I, I love I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's Mr. He actually does have a name, even though they never say it. But he, he has a credited name of Mr. Leuchtag. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of performances, I'm not somebody who's super well-versed uh, in Humphrey Bogart. I've seen uh, probably four or five of his films. This is my this is my favorite version of, of Humphrey Bogart. I feel like this is the part where, again, because that not even that character, but, but the, all of the characters that Bogart played, especially somehow in the eighties, that was very popular to put into mm -hmm. like in a, in a children's cartoon. I can think of multiple cartoons that I watched as a kid that, and I mean, Looney Tunes does a lot of this that has like a Humphrey Bogart character in it. Somebody who talks like that, um, that, uh, that sometimes it's hard for me to actually see him in something, yeah. but something about Rick just feels like, perfectly rounded out perfectly inch like 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 i love i love him because i feel like he is um he's so cool in all the different ways that you can mean cool mm -hmm. i feel like he is all of those things um but at the same time he like plays heartbroken really well and really believably uh 
and I feel like sometimes that doesn't work in movies with with leading men, like like to the, this idea that they're like he's really damaged, and you don't know why, and then you realize she's a huge piece of why he's damaged. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, then and, and and this this was the film that made him a megastar. He was he was already pre pretty well established. He had done. Um, you know, the, the petrified, petrified Forest in the late 30s was kind of a breakthrough starring role for him. Uh, and then probably his biggest success before Casablanca would have been The Maltese Falcon in 41, which, of course, also had Sidney Greenstreet, the fat man. And I love the line. I love the line in Casablanca where he says when he identifies Ferrari, he says he's the fat man over there. And, of course, that's Sidney Greenstreet's. Uh, that's what they call him in The Maltese Falcon. Uh, and then, of course, Peter Lorre was also with him in The Maltese Falcon. So he was he was a pretty highly regarded star. So, as I said, you know, the reader for the film uh, of the script had originally said this looks like a, a Bogart role. He also said it could have been a Cagney role or a George Raft role. Uh, but I can't imagine Cagney in, in this role. This is there's a world weariness about almost any character that Bogart plays. Um, and there's usually, there's usually a cynical edge. Um, of course, we saw Bogart previously when we watched Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is, a, which is another version of a Bogart character, that kind of the cowardice that's, that's kind of beneath the surface. And what's interesting about Rick, right, is there's this suggestion that Rick might be a coward or that Rick might be morally corrupt uh, but of course, one of the things the film is interested in is showing how that's not really the case. That right beneath that cynical exterior, there is actually a, a, a uh, an idealist, or as uh, as his friend says, a sentimentalist. Um, but the other direction, this kind of woundedness that's in a Bogart character, the other direction it takes is one of my favorite Bogart films, uh, In a Lonely Place. Uh, from 1950 with Nicholas Ray directing. That's a that's a film that really shows this character who's deeply damaged down beneath and can't ultimately control his demons. So one of the things that that uh, I think connects this movie to the Third Man with me is the the wide cast of of characters and I mean the sort of the you get the sense of Vienna as this international city. You get the sense of Casablanca as this international city, and you have you have just this again this this wide array of characters you have different accents you have at times different languages again not subtitled and that that actually heightens things a little bit too sometimes it heightens jokes like the uh the germ is it the a german and an italian or a french and an italian officer that are arguing the whole time and you never know what they're saying but um uh but yeah like 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 i do you have do you have characters that stand out as particularly uh, meaningful or important or 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 that you just really enjoy in this film? Because there are lots of people who, who are playing small but important roles, and then there's a couple really big roles, too. Well, I mean, I, I love I, I love Peter Lorre's performance, and I'm, I'm sorry that Peter Lorre got knocked off so early. Um, one one, one, one uh, critic of the film said that he actually threatened to steal the film, uh, so maybe it's good that they killed him off earlier. I, 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 I mean, he, it's a big role, but I love Claude Rains. Um, I just think, you know, Claude, Claude, Claude Rains as... Um, uh, as the uh, 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 Louis uh, Renault, yeah, yeah. Thank you, as Renault. Um, I mean, I think that's a that's a really great part, and it, and it's a really interesting um, counterbalance to Rick because they're they're both kind of playing the same game in a way. Although I think Renault actually has an actual kind of moral conversion at the at, at the end. I think he I think he's actually corrupt but he kind of changes but but i do i do want to say about the cast um sam that really it's a it's an amazing case of 
art imitating life because almost all the actors in this film are emigres uh, who have in fact fled Nazi, Nazi Germany. So you have, even in small roles, you asked about, you asked about parts, Marcel, da, uh, Marcel Dalio, who plays the croupier, uh, he's French. Uh, he's, uh, he had big roles in a couple of major French films uh, in uh, Renoir's Rules of the Game and Grand Illusion. Uh, but he, has, he was a son of Romanian Jewish parents. So he had to, he had to flee France. Um, the, uh, the, the actor who, who, uh, who plays Major Strasser, Conrad Veidt, um, he has a Jewish wife. Uh, and so he had, to, he had to flee the Nazis. I mean, almost everybody you can mention in, in this film, uh, with the exception really of Claude Rains, um, Bergman and, and Bogart. I mean, everybody else is really a refugee from the Nazis in the way that the characters in the films are, film are. And in fact, in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s, more than 800 actors, directors, producers, uh, writers, uh, uh, composers came from uh, came from came from from Germany, um, including you know Billy Wilder, for example, who we've already uh, lo looked at. Um, uh, Fred Zinnemann, who directed High Noon. Uh, Douglas Sirk, who makes the so-called Weepies in the 1950s. Robert Siedmack, who directed Out of the Past. I mean, Fritz Lang, uh, Rudolf Maté, the great cinematographer. The list just goes on and on of the ways in which Hollywood itself was Casablanca. Uh, and so that's another thing that makes the film really interesting is that relationship between the real lives of the actors and the characters they're portraying. Well, and as I, I was reading about the um, the one of I me mean, one of the great scenes in the movie that we can talk about is uh, the uh, the dueling national anthems when the, yes. the 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 Nazis are singing the Watch on the Rhine and um, Laszlo goes to the band and you know has them play the French national anthem and I am. I am explicitly saying the French national anthem because that is a word I am incapable of pronouncing correctly. So I will just say that. Um, but but that when that was shot, uh, somebody on set talked about how like you know you see people like some people you know crying during that in the um, you know in the movie, and they're like those were real tears. Those were mm -hmm. like that was that was not just a scene in a movie, but they were sort of symbolically representing like like we are we are refugees. We are people who have been um exiled from our home and this and and this is a uh, this is a, a scene of making a stand against that let, let me let me give you a little historical irony um about about that scene um this uh the film this casablanca was bogart's first academy award nomination uh he did not win uh he lost out to paul lucas who uh got it for his performance in a film called watch on the rhine <laughs> 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 that is interesting. I know nothing else about that film. I don't even know much about Paul Lucas, but I do know that that's that is to me kind of interesting. I mean, there, there's so many films made during the war about the war. It's it's really it's really astonishing when you start digging into it how much Hollywood was actually engaged in uh, in, in the war effort, and it was one of the reasons why the production code didn't have. Didn't have any objections to. I mean, they they did. There there were a few minor objections to Casablanca in terms of you know clarifying what Rick and Ilse's relationship was. But by and large, the production code office is very happy to pass this film on and say this is a a great patriotic film that will assist in the war effort. And of course, the film is set. You know, the time of the film is December 1941, so it's set right before uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, one of the things that I love about that, the, the scene with the national anthems 
is that it's um it's the first time you understand Laszlo's power. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also when Strauss understands it too. But but there is this moment where where he and Rick are watching them sing. And Rick is still in his, you know, isolationist. I'm not going to get involved. I stick my neck out for nobody. And Laszlo confidently walks over to the band and just, I mean, he's got no authority there and just tells them play the song. And, um, and you realize like, it's where, it's where I fall in love with Laszlo a little bit too. And I'm like, Oh, that's, that's why that, that's why this, because he needs to be that compelling in order to make the, the, the end of the movie you need to you need to see why he's so important. Why Rick would say like, you have to go with him. He's important. The what you do is important, um, and that he's the person who can pull Rick back. You know, as he says, back into the fight. Well, it it, it also taps into the into another an, another thing the film does, and that is that it both defines these characters as individuals, but I won't say it makes them allegorical figures, but they are representative figures of particular political realities. So obviously the reference to Rick as an isolationist is a description of America's isolationism. Uh, Renault kind of um, embodies that that tension between Vichy France and Free France and Strasser is Nazi Germany and and, uh, Laszlo is the resistance. So... To me, that's also an amazing feat of the film when you can have characters who are both fully realized as individuals, but are also symbolic in some ways. I think that that's another way that the film has that kind of deeper, deeper resonance. So when they speak, they speak for themselves, but they also speak for, in a sense, their country. And so Renault is a great representative of that division within France itself between the resistance and the Vichy government. So the scene at the end, I mean, it's a little heavy handed, but it's still wonderful, right? When he has the bottle of Vichy water that he then throws in the trash. I mean, it's, 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 it's completely, it, it works the way really good uh, symbolism works in, in any drama where it's a completely naturalistic action. And yet at the same time, it's a symbolic action. Well, what I love about Rick and Louis uh, at the beginning of the film is they're both at least putting out this image, uh, a pretty sort of cynical image about the world. Rick is basically, I look out for myself and Louis a different kind of cynicism. His is like, well, I go wherever the wind is blowing, you know? And he says, currently it's blowing from France or from, from Germany. So, um, but, but I, you know, so, so there's that degree to which you can see him as somebody who's like kowtowing to the Nazis in power. But I love the moment when, um, uh, when Rick introduces the Strausser to, uh, to, or excuse me, when Louis introduces Strausser to Rick and Louis keeps saying the third Reich, the third Reich. And Strausser says, you say the third Reich as if you expect there would be another, <laughs> you know? And, and, and it's just like, and he's sort of saying like, well, we'll take things. I take things as they come, you know? So even he has, is sort of like, he's not himself on their side, but they're the side in power. So that's where the wind is blowing. So it's like, you get these two, even two different images of, uh, I mean, you get like the isolationist cynicism and you get the, uh, or, or individualism, cynicism, whatever, and then you get Louis, who's just like, just bends towards wherever the wherever whatever is the 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 path of power around him. And I, I so I find that so interesting. I will say, Claude Rains, uh, upon this rewatch, is my favorite part of this movie. I think he's he gets yeah. a million great lines. Um, and so I was wondering until I started reading about this, I'm wondering like why when you look at sort of who's above the line for this, 
you have Bergman, which makes sense. You have Bogart, that makes sense. And then you have Henried. And it's like, why is Claude Rains not up there, but Henried is? And I realized that, that that is often contractual things, and that was the case here as well, right? Yeah, H Henried was actually newly signed. He uh, he didn't even sign until uh, until May 25th after the shooting had started. Uh, and I think Henry gets that, that high billing because he was a big sensation in now Voyager with, with as I alluded to earlier, uh, is Claude Rains was also in, in, uh, in now Voyager, but Henry at that time was sort of ascendant. Um, I want to say one other thing about Louis and that is he, you're right. He follows the power, but he also follows the money. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's, that's really what motivates Louis. So, so even at the end, right, the, the matter of the 10,000 francs, is is part of their final conversation that, that that's gonna that's gonna get them to uh to their next uh des destination um so i also in my notes the when i first started re-watching this the first thing i realized was that opening voiceover and as you said how much it reminds me of uh the opening of the third man where you get uh, but it also reminded me and maybe it's just the sound of the guy's voice and the way some of it is written um, it also reminds me of the newsreel in Citizen Kane a little bit mm -hmm. too, where it's like, we're going to establish this uh, version of a sort of a voice of God character who's going to set the stage for, for what these next movies. Now, Kane goes in a different direction with that. But I took a while trying to figure out, it actually sounds a lot like the same voice. So I was trying to figure out, is that possibly the same? It's it's not, but... No. but it, but it's it's a very it's a very similar voice, and I think more so the way it's written is uh, is is very similar. Now, one mm -hmm. thing I found interesting about the start of this movie is it takes six minutes until you meet a named character uh, in this movie, and then I think nine minutes until you get to Rick. Like it takes its time setting the scene and setting up what are what's going to be the sort of tension with these letters of transit and the couriers and rounding up the you know the fact that they don't put Louis in that the scene at the beginning where they're talking about you know rounding up the the you know all all suspects and things like that that they wait and wait and wait on that I really like that well it's also another I mean it's obviously earlier in the film but it's a similar uh introduction you know we get we get Harry Lyme through his feet and uh and we get Rick through his hands so mm -hmm. it's the same the same kind of tease for the for the for the audience um, the other thing that, that I, I had forgotten about um, that is they also don't explain Rick very much. They, they no. explain, you know, like, like uh, you know, and maybe this is a way, uh, okay, this is a big leap, but, but, but connecting it to thinking about Kane, right? That people, people mm -hmm. think they know Rick, but they know pieces about him. Like they know, okay, well, you ran guns to Ethiopia and you fought uh, against Franco in Spain. Um, and you, But everybody's like, but there's this missing piece. Like for some reason, you're not able to go back home and we're not going to reveal that thing. Um, and, and you know, that they're, I, I like that people are trying to sort of make sense of him. Strasse even has the, uh, the dossier on him and he has the great line. He's like, are my eyes really brown? Like, I just, again, <laughs> he's so cool. Uh, but, but like, but I, I do like that, that, he's a mystery and they allow him to remain a mystery. And, and even his future is a mystery. Like, you, you know, they're walking literally into the fog at the yeah. end. Um, but I, I, I like that construction of him is that he's a mystery that is not to be solved. Right. So yeah, it's, 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 it's another way, uh, you know, that the Hollywood film kind of engages the uh, viewer's imagination. So you can imagine yeah, you know, does what kind of criminal past does does Rick have? When Louis when Louis names all the possibilities, right? He says, "Yeah, it's a mix. 
you know, did you kidnap the senator's daughter or did you kill somebody? I forget what the third thing was. He says, yeah, it's kind of a mix of all three. Of course, it could be none of them. It's, it's, it, we, we, have, we have no idea. Uh, and, I, and I do. I, I love it. I love the way he remains a, a person of, of, of mystery. What I also love is how he is that and he knows that about himself. But there's also these moments where he thinks he understands that he understands people. One of the it's it's a little moment, but when they're in Paris and he's talking to Ilsa and they're in they realize the Germans are coming and he turns to her as if he thinks he knows her life and says, you know, what are you basically are you afraid to be on the run with me? Mm-hmm. It's and 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 you and as a viewer, you don't know yet, but as a, a re-watching viewer, you know like Oh, she's been on the run for a while, right? Like, like she's already married to, to somebody who's more wanted than Rick will ever be, you know. Like, but but he's making this assumption about her, and that that's that's the thing she's afraid of. And in fact, what we realize is you don't really know this person either. You think you do, but you don't really know this person. And I like that that moment hits hits nice and hard too. And I like that. Um, we also I also like that we get the um with Rick sort of the opposite of the um, save the cat moment, uh, which is popular, you know, in, in screenwriting now that you have to show the character's goodness early on where you watch him, uh, Ugate come to him and he is, and that's the moment when he pronounces like, I stick my neck out for nobody. And it's like, clearly this person who um, to the degree Rick has friends, like this is somebody who is, you know, who, who can move through Rick's world, but Rick is going to let him basically watch him die. You know, uh, and and so that 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 shows that when he says things like "I stick my neck out for nobody," like he means it. There's there's stakes added to it by showing that. And I I, I think it's you know I think it's a complex moment. Um, the the, uh, the the film kind of tries to I, I think really uh, force you to be a, feel alienated from Rick at that moment, right? Because this other guy comes up to him and says, you know, basically I hope that you know. I hope that never happens between you and me where I have to help, you know, rely on you to, to stick your neck out to save me. But, but then if you kind of step back and you analyze it and you think, well, but I mean, isn't Garty the kind of person you actually want to rescue? I mean, Rick, I mean, there's a certain common sensicality about what Rick is saying. There's a, uh, and also, of course, at that point in the film, that would be a purely romantic, sentimental gesture on his part. And mm-hmm. it really, it really takes what he goes through with Ilsa when she shows up again. It really takes that complex character arc that he goes through that would enable him to become the person who, in fact, at the end of the film, does stick his neck out. Mm-hmm. And, and he sticks his neck out for two things, right? He sticks his neck out for the cause. I think I think he actually sticks his neck out not because of who Laszlo is personally, but because of what Laszlo represents. And Rick actually believes in the cause. Um, but and he also sticks his neck out for Ilsa. Um, but he's not he's not ready to do that at the beginning of the film because he's um, he 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 hasn't changed in the way he needs to change in order to become the character who can who can do that. So what's interesting is. Louis fond of pointing out, I mean, because Rick goes through like his body chemistry changes when Ilsa shows up and mm-hmm. Louis points it out. It's like, yeah. oh, I've, you know, I've like, I've seen you like he sees this change in him. Rick starts drinking with, you know, with them. And he's like, well, okay, this is a, this is a night of first and things like this. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the other time we see Rick uh, basically side with somebody is the Bulgarian couple. Yes. And, 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 
And Louie notices that. And Louie doesn't comment on that being like out of character for Rick exactly. So so like like I wonder if there are these little moments where he is, you know, as Louis points out, like deep down, you're a sentimentalist. And it's like, I mean, like, so I, I wonder, and I like that this isn't explained, but I wonder, like, are there other moments where Rick does a thing like that, that Louis is, is at least tracking on to be like, I, I, I'm not quite sure of what I, what to make of you. Well, you know, I think that Louis, Louis is, a, as, you, as you said earlier, you know, Louis is an opportunist that determines where the wind blows. I think part of Louis as well is he's a, he's a very keen uh, psychologist. I think he really gets, I think he sees people very clearly and sees kind of deeply into people. And so I think he's a very good, we would say, you know, judge of character. And so I think he's, he's actually got a pretty good uh, view, a very, very clear view of, of, of who Rick is, sometimes maybe even clearer than Rick's own view. Absolutely. Absolutely. Two last things that I want to talk about. Um, we mentioned music. Do you want to say anything more about music in this movie? Oh, I just, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's got, it's got obviously as time goes by, which appears in a number of different ways. It appears diegetically, non-diegetically. It becomes, it's orchestral. Um, the, the, you get different parts of the lyrics. And so it's interesting to me that the, uh, the, the line about uh, fight for uh, love and the, the line about uh, fight for truth and valor, whatever it is. Love and glory. Love and valor. You, you get that actually in Paris, kind of on the, on the eve of the, of, of the invasion. So the song functions as both a commentary on their love affair, but also a commentary on, on the war. Uh, you already mentioned the dueling national anthems. You also have the song in Spanish at one point. Um, so I, I think it's I think the the music I think is one of the is one of the elements that actually kind of elevates the film a little bit above melodrama. I mean that's a whole other way to think about this film, right? It's it's a melodrama, but it's it's somehow been able to heighten uh, the genre, and the music is one of the things that does that. Uh, and then we should just talk about the ending. Um, this is it's a it's it is a great wow ending. Um, you see you see Rick kind of click into action. He's you know um, he's been not inactive, but he's sort of but he's 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 um, doesn't want to get involved. But then once he does, he's kind of he's totally involved, and and he's the one who's kind of running things. So we get to see this other aspect of him, um, and then. Uh, he gets, he makes this great speech to Ilsa about what really matters, uh, you know, and, and, and what she needs to do and what he needs to do. Uh, and, and, uh, and you get, uh, you get Laszlo, you know, great line about welcome back to the fight. And even the word back there is doing a little bit of important work there. Then mm. you get the, the, the shooting of Strasse, you get Louis flip, you get them walking off into the fog with, with again, there's so many moments that this you could have said like, well, that's the line to go out on, but the fact that it goes out on a line that's pushing Rick forward, and you realize that Rick will probably never see Ilsa again, even though we saw him broken by that. But that the, the last line is about relationship, and it, but yeah. it's you know it's like this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship, and I, I and I get excited for. Um, Again, back to our first episode, the the February third question, yes. like like this is a perfect movie for like I, I'm so glad it doesn't exist, but I love the thought of like what is their next like 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 where are they headed? What is their next thing? And the fact that they walk off into the gauzy fog uh, as they're saying it is just it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. And you don't stop and think about the fact that fog in Morocco seems pretty unlikely, uh, given 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 the climate. 
Right. Um, well, it's, it's like the line where Rick says he came to Morocco for the waters. <laughs> says, I, I was I was misinformed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it, it, it is. It is amazing the way the film the film manages to have two endings that both work perfectly well. Right. You have the the high drama suspenseful ending with the plane taking off uh, into the fog, and then you've got the downbeat. And uh, first of all, you make sure you kill off the Nazi. That's important. Uh, and then, and then, and then, as you said, the focus on on the relationship at the end. I just, uh, it's really, you know, I can think of films that kind of blow the ending. It's like, oh, they should have stopped here, but it kept going. Or I, I, this film just does a beautiful job of ending two different, resolving two different relationships uh, in in two different ways. Uh, and one of the things that I, that I, I mean, if we're, if we're thinking again about the third man, you know, the third man has this like, uh, very, very tough ending to, to wrestle with, right. As, as you see Anna walk by, um, walk by Holly and it's like, you, you realize like, oh, this it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty dark ending to think about, uh, what Holly's learned about the world and what he does next. Um, and this has such a, um, I guess hopeful, optimistic ending in a. I mean, for the fact that the that the the two main love interests don't end up together, it is somehow a, a hopeful, optimistic movie, um, which is also a, a cool little sleight of hand magic trick that they play. Um, that uh, um, and what I wonder is like like I love, I love art that makes me feel. This this movie makes me feel motivated. Makes me feel like I want to join the fight. Like it makes me feel like like I want to do things that are important. Um, and I I'm drawn to art like that, but I'm also sometimes skeptical of art like that because because mm -hmm. it, it's because uh, I I question like well is this manipulative? Is this propaganda? Like like do you do you ever feel distrustful about about works of art, particularly films maybe that that. Uh, works so well to rouse specific feelings in you sure yeah yeah it's a it's a form of, con of uh, confirmation bias right and uh at the same time i i also like films that push me in other directions that i don't really want that i don't really want to go but in terms of what you were saying i mean obviously I, that's that contrast between those two films and noah eisenberg who wrote a recent book called we'll always have casablanca um, he said in an interview about this film that um, at a time when we are increasingly hopeless, and this is 2017, a movie like Casablanca at least gives us a few flickers of faith in humanity. And then he adds studio confected artifice or no artifice. And I think that's the way I feel about that. It's, you know, there's a certain artifice around it and, you, and, and there's a part of you, I don't want to feel like a chump just because I've been taken in by something that's getting at me through my emotions and not through my reason. But at the same time, that's what art does. And just because you get to a certain conclusion because you've gone a different route than some kind of uh, rational route doesn't mean that where you've gotten isn't the right place to be. So that that, that kind of helps me feel better about feeling good. Absolutely. And it does paint such a great picture of kind of, uh, it's not exactly pre-war, but it's basically, you know, it's it's pretty early, uh, early World War II for, for America uh, versus the third man, which is post-war and you get a much different picture of the world um, in that way. Are there things that you want to talk about with this film? I, I just want to quickly mention the afterlife of Casablanca. So in just, you know, you talked about February 3rd for the actors. What about for the film, right? So a couple of high points. Um, Warner's actually considered a sequel uh, that they were going to call Brazzaville. 
but but they they, never, they did not pursue it. But then the Lux Radio Hour the next year in '44 did an hour long version of Casablanca with Alan Ladd as Rick and Hedy Lamar, who was the original choice for Ilsa before they ended up with Ingrid Ingrid Bergman. And then in '51, uh, Bogart's production family uh, company Santana makes a film called Sirocco, which has a very similar plot to Casablanca, trying to recapture that lightning. There's two TV series of Casablanca, uh, one, in, one in 1955 and one in uh, 1983. Uh, neither one is very successful. Um, in uh, 1981, there's a CBS television show, 60 Minutes does an episode in Casablanca called The Best Movie Ever Made. And then the one, the one thing I really love is in 1982, uh, somebody, Chuck Ross, mails the script of Casablanca under the title of Everybody Comes to Rick's to 200 agents. 85 respond, 38 reject it as an unworthy project, and only 33 actually recognize it. So I don't know what that tells us about, about great art, but that's, that's <laughs> very, very interesting to me. That's fantastic. It, 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 reminds, it reminds me a little bit of the time when Jimmy Stewart uh, entered himself in a uh, in a Jimmy Stewart impression contest and did not win. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what do you have for us for next week? Okay, well, this is this is this is a setup. Okay, um, and I told you last week I had two reasons for wanting to do this film, and one was to think about it as a contrast to the Third Man. The other reason is about ten days ago, the great French actor Jean Paul Belmondo died. And uh, Belmondo's uh, big breakthrough role was in the uh, quintessential French New Wave film Breathless by Jean-Luc Godard. And in that film, there are numerous and deliberate references to Bogart, uh, Bogie's characters, as shaping the character played by Jean-Paul Belmondo. So we need to get a little bit into the French New Wave. Uh, so Breathless from 1960 is our film next week. Well, I am so excited. I will say... Uh... Godard is somebody who I'm aware of, but never seen a film from. So that's a, a hole in the resume. So I'm very, very excited for this. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film, for recommending it in conversation with The Third Man. I feel like both of these movies are better for being in that conversation with each other, and both of them are great in their own right. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Breathless in the video store. Mm -hmm.